Good morning, good evening, or good night, you lovelies, or whichever time you're listening to the show. And I'm here to bring you something unique and special, just like you. Today I'm narrating you a tale straight from 1937, straight from the Dime Mystery Magazine, which would be a 10 cent magazine. Mates, if I was around when they had 10 cent magazines, <laughs> I'd be that kid eating them up and non-stop reading. So many awesome tales in these magazines, such classics. And today's tale is one of those classics, of course. One recently released for circulation titled Soft Blows The Breeze From Hell. Now, the Dime Mystery Magazine was inspired narratively and stylistically by Grand Guignol's French theater and gothic melodramas, with a focus on strange or weird menace horrors, a mix of both mystery, the unreal, and terrifying. So tick, tick, tick for awesome. The Dime Mystery Magazine set themselves apart from the mainstream spy stories at the time. You know, hard-boiled, tough-nut detective fiction that would pull in the masses. But instead, this lot tailored for the outright horror and freaky sort of tales. The real awesome part of these stories was that they never restricted themselves to specific genres and would dabble in various range of narrative stylings, but generally always horror which fits this show perfectly. For this Dime Magazine episode, we have a four-parter structure with chapters one and two being narrated today, whilst next Wednesday will be the finale. So turn the lights off, the sound up, and let's listen to something unique. It was ball-shaped and about the size of a five-year-old's fist. Its color was the yellow-tainted white of a corpse dead by a day. It was so weightless that although the lightest of breezes breathed down Salton's elm-lined Blossom Street, it fled before the Zephyr, curiously swift, curiously without sound. In the dusk's dim gray hush, the thing was at first noticed by no one, so that for minutes no one thought its presence strange. Though the hamlet lay in the midst of rolling fields, and the nearest spot sunless and dank enough for the fungus to grow was Roggett's Wood, a full five miles away. It darted along the narrow, sod-bordered walk, leaping the grass shoots between the worn flagstones, flitting beneath the feet of the strollers in the dreamy twilight. None had any hint of how soon all laughter would be stifled in Stelton, or how soon eyes now sparkling with gaiety would be dark and brooding with dread. It was Hilda Mead who first saw the round thing as it scudded past her along a picket fence, pale in the evening's greyness. Look! she exclaimed, snatching her slim hand from Hal Curtin's warm clasp to point at it. Look, darling! What is that? What? her stalwart lover asked, his gaze reluctant to drag itself from her olive, elfin face, from the sweet promise of her velvet lips. What is what, dear? That! Oh, I don't like it, Hal. A tiny shudder went through a small boned, round little body. I don't like the way it's running along as though it were alive with a queer kind of life, and knows where it's going. Silly! The young man exclaimed his teeth flashing in a fond smile as he appeared after that to which Hilda pointed. It's nothing but a puffball. It's a common fungus and 
And I still don't like it. The girl interrupted, pouting prettily at Curtin. I'm afraid of it. Afraid? Instinctively wise in the weight of love, Hal Curtin had sense enough not to laugh, had sense enough to draw Hilda within the strong curve of his arm, to hold her close against her body's slender strength and say, deep-voiced, You need never be afraid of anything while I'm alive to protect you. The puffball veered sharply from its course, almost as if possessed of the weird sentience Hilda had ascribed to it. It leaped at a dim scene gate, struck a paling, and vanished in the spurt of spore smoke that gave its kind their name. In the next moment, the cottage beyond the gate seemed blotted out by a dark pall. Its outlines merged with the night, the yellow rectangles of its windows gone. Something's happened to the lights, Hal Curtin thought. In the blackened house, someone laughed. The laugh was edged with shrillness and utterly humorous, and threaded by a mad sort of agony. More appalling than any scream, it held Blossom Street enthralled to a sudden icy paralysis, so that there was no movement under the elms but only blanching faces and the gasp of caught breaths. Then there was light again in those windows, a burst of lurid light that lay in whirling sheets against the pane and smashed through them with great shattering of glass, and spouted out of the gaping holes thus made in huge roaring tongues of flame. There was light in the street, and on the ivy-clad small homes in the gardens, the terrifying orange-red light of fire. There were shadows, the gigantic black shadows of the trees wavering as the flames wavered. The shadows of humans, arms flung overhead, shouting shadows, screaming shadows pelting toward the blaze. Shouts and screams and the roar of flames, and always through the roar, that terrible laugh. God! Hal Curtin gasped, holding Hilda tight within his arm. They haven't the ghost of a chance! Those who had been strolling on Blossom Street were past them. Those coming from farther off had not yet reached them. And for breathless seconds, the lovers were isolated. They're done for! Look! The girl throbbed. Look! Her free hand flung out to the ridgepole of the blazing house. There! Against sky glare was blackly silhouetted a thin man form, yet grotesquely not a man. On the narrowest crest of the slanted roof that was not yet alight, it capered in a queerly simian frenzy, and it was from that capering monstrosity that the brain-curdling laugh came. From the dark human mass surging against the fence of the doomed house, surging away from the blasting heat of that furnace, a shout went up. Curtin could not know whether it was evoked by sight of the thing on the roof or by the explosion of flame through the black roof slant. The house was a vast torch now, a pillar of seething orange and crimson and strange greens supporting on its apex the affrighted vault of the sky, with which in nothing could live. Nothing. Hal tore himself away from Hilda's clinging hands, a strange cry in his throat. He bolted the pickets beside him. His leap, a life and effortless bound, was hurtling away from her. His feet thudded into soft garden loam, and his nostrils was the sweet fragrance of honeysuckle. His toes flung the crunch of path cinders behind him. He whipped past the red-bathed porch of a small home, past its end wall whose dark ivory strove to shield it from the lurid glare. He was beyond it. On the soft turf of its kitchen yard, 
angling towards the roar whence the glare came and had plunged into the shadow of the next house, Stygian by contrast. Blinded, curtain battered into a black hedge he did not see, was ripped by its stems, its stiff leaves as he burst through it into the blackness. Tall grass whipped his legs as he knew he was in the vacant lots that lie between Stalton and the fields. He halted for a moment to get his bearings, projected almost useless sight, taut hearing into the gloom that was the deeper, because overlaid by the rubid heavens. Somewhere within that murk was furative moment. There, almost straight ahead, was the darkening of the black. Hal launched himself at the vague forms, wrath-wrenching a shout from his lips. The forms were plainer. His ankle was caught by some ground creeper, pulled from under him. He lurched forward into a blow that exploded white light within his skull. Hilda Mead squatted in the tall grass, reckless of her filmy white frock. Hal, she whispered. Hal, I thought I'd never find you. Her hands tugged at the recumbent form, tugged its head onto her knees. Hal, her fingers found wetness on that head, viscid wetness matching the hair, staining her fingers. Ouch. Curtin winced, jerking his head from the fierce pain of that touch. Don't! Then, Hilda, you... Hell, what was it? What were you chasing? What? Who did this to you? I saw... He checked himself. Hilda, don't ask me what I saw. Don't let me tell you. Hell, you're still dazed. You're talking wildly. No. Curtin pushed hands against the ground, pushed himself to a sitting posture. No, I'm not dazed, I... Hilda, you must not know. It would be dangerous for you to know. Something in his tone told the girl there was utter truth in the words that otherwise was so mad. And listen, tell no one it was I. How I got this cut in my head, say that I started to run to the fire, tripped, banged my skull. Perhaps, perhaps I was not seen. Clearly, was not recognized. It was fear that sounded in Hal's voice, and Hilda had not dreamed that he could ever be afraid. Do you understand? No, she said. I don't understand, but I'll do as you say. A crash pulled their eyes to where the fire had ablazed. Sparks fountained above the dull red glow that was all that was left of the blaze. High into the sky they went, till there were golden stars dancing in the heavens, and then they were drifting down again upon Stelton. Hilda Mead had a queer fancy that there were tiny lanterns guiding a horde of imps to their landing place. Chapter 2 Disaster It was not long after dawn that the ruined of the house of Blossom Street had cooled sufficiently to permit inspection and the full extent of the horror made certain. The searchers found the skeletons then, in the jumble of charred timbers that once had been a home. Enough of the incinerated bones to identify whose they were, when the holocaust seared life from them. There were five of them, five heaps of whitened ashes. That's the full count, the haggard-faced spy chief said when he had received the last report from one of his men. Not one escaped. How could they? John Wayne, village president, responded. The way that fire burst out. He was tall and gnarled and sturdy as an oak, 
His hatless white hair was smudged by the embers that had drifted into it while the blaze still burned, for he had been early on the scene. They tell me it was everywhere at once, upstairs and down. His grizzled, kindly countenance was grey with his distress. Everywhere. That's what got me. Chief Rail muttered. It was a wooden house, sure enough, but it was well built and should have resisted the flames, if I know anything at all. I'd understand it if they'd been cut off in a single room, but from the position of the bodies and the things around them, the maid was in the kitchen washing dishes. Bob Dutton and the boy were in the living room, Mary upstairs in the nursery, and the baby. The baby was in its crib. Rail said softly, Mary, the way she lies tells us, threw herself over it to save it, even with the flames around her, as they must have been. The mother did that. A murmur went through the group of mourning neighbors that, silent save for a shifting of uneasy feet and an occasional muffled sob, had been listening to the report. In the depths of Hal Curtin's brown eyes, a smolder of wrath deepened, and the line of his blunt jaw hardened to a knotted ridge. He moved closer to Wayne and Rail, addressed the latter. Chief, he asked, low-toned, are you sure that was all who were in the house? The tired man turned to him. We've raked the ashes clean and that's all we've found. That isn't what I mean. I thought there might, that someone might have escaped. I know the family's all accounted for, but there might have been some visitor. There wasn't none. A pillow-bosomed woman, Lena Corbett, put in. I was just in there to ask Mary for a dress pattern. I knew she had. And there wasn't anyone but Bob and little Bob and her around. And there couldn't have been anybody come in because I was scarcely back to my own gate, two doors away, when the thing happened. In the kitchen, maybe? Someone calling on the maid? No. I went to the door to ask Jenny for a glass of water, and I saw the whole room. There wasn't anybody. That was that, then. The capering figure on the roof was unexplained. The figure that had laughed not in glee but in agony. No one had mentioned it, hence no one but he and Hilda had seen it. But that was reasonable. The spectator's gaze had been riveted on the flame-filled windows. Why do you ask that? Rell inquired. What's on your mind, Hal? Curtin shrugged. Nothing. Now why had he lied? He had intended to tell them of what he'd seen. Just a hunch I had. He glanced at the watch on his wrist. It's late. I've got to be getting to work, and much as I don't feel like it. The knot of watchers broke up as he walked away, reminded of waiting offices and workrooms, of housework to be done and children to be sent off to school. But those children were kissed more lingeringly that morning, more reluctantly dispatched. Infants too young for school were held tightly to their mother's breasts. Hal! Hilda's dear voice called his name. She was at the gate of her home, halfway down the block, fresh and sweet in a filmy negligee, her eyes still dewy with sleep. Hal, I saw you! Is your head all right? She touched the plastered bandage that made a white patch in his shock of chestnut hair. I had to run out and ask. Quite all right, darling. His brown, strong hand closed on her finger, took them to his lips. I haven't even a headache left. Hal, I was awake for a long time. I was thinking, could that thing we saw have anything to do with what happened? That puffball? Good lord, what a queer idea. 
Curtin was queerly uneasy. How on earth could it? He had a queer sensation as of eyes upon him, watching, evil eyes. He half turned to the street with careful carelessness, calculated not to alarm his sweetheart. It couldn't, of course, he heard her. Of course it couldn't. Nobody was watching him. There was no one who had any reason to watch him. They were all familiar, all friendly, warm-hearted people who had been his neighbors and friends. That's more sensible. He leaned over the gate, kissed Hilda full on her sweet, warm mouth. Bye, love. I've got to go and tend to business. She held him a moment longer. Hell, she breathed. I want to ask you something. Yes? Did you mean what you said last night? That you'll protect me from anything? All my life. From the devil and all his imps. His voice was deep, as if he suddenly had some prescience of how soon he was to be called upon to fill almost literally that promise. The second puffball was seen by many of the townspeople. It appeared in Main Street at 3.15 that afternoon, when traffic there was at its height. It bounded straight down the center of the street. And it was the way that it avoided the rolling wheels of the autos, the trampling hooves of the farmer's horses that drew amused eyes, pointing fingers to it. The wind was stronger than it had been on the previous evening, and the bit of fungus was much like a tiny, pallid animal, scudding legless and armless before it. It was shooting across the intersection of Apple Street when Hal Curtin, driving back to his law office from the town hall, spied it. Unaccountably, his skin crawled with sudden apprehension. Almost without violation, he skidded his roadster into Main Street and darted after the swiftly rolling thing like a terrier after a rat. The instant before his mind had still been filled with the scene in the village council room. John Wayne had presided with unaccustomed solemnity, the morning's tragedy brooding in his eyes. Curtin himself, Butcher Rudolph Skulk, portly, ruddy-cheeked, gaunt and acidulous Dr. Adam Ranier, and Stefan Brin, pompous with the dignity of his bank, had sat slouched, deep in their chairs, attentive but wordless. But there had been debate verging on acrimony at that meeting, the protagonists had been fussy little Mark Yarrow the druggist and realtor Redden Garst. The issue? Approval by the council of a great trunk highway proposed to run through Stelton's very centre. Gast was violently in favour. Yarrow opposed. Bryn and Rainier were lined up with their realtor. Skulk and Curtin with Yarrow. That left Wayne with the deciding vote, and there was no doubt of how that vote would be cast. Stalton was the old man's very life. Its tree-lined streets, its neat white homes, its peaceful atmosphere of neighborliness, created almost by his very hands. When first he'd come here, the town had been a rambling, dingy hamlet, a trading center for the farmer's roundabout, and nothing more. By his influence, by his unremitting toil, it had become what it was. A trunk route through it would bring turmoil and confusion, a mushroom growth of gas stations and hot dog stands and roadhouses, a stench of exhaust fumes by day and a clamor of honking horns by night. 
Yet such was the fairness, the passion for justice of the man that because Gas and his party saw prosperity for Stelton in that change, he had agreed to reserve the vote given him only in cast of a tie, till they had every opportunity to win over one of those who thought as he. Wayne had gone further. He had offered to resign from his presidency and call a special election in which he would run against anyone Gast chose. This, however, the realtor had refused, knowing well enough that no matter what the question, John Wayne would be re-elected by an overwhelming margin. So dearly loved was he by the people of Stelton. Gast preferred, however, to attempt to win to his side one of those who was not too strongly opposed to the idea. If he succeeded, his paltry landholdings would become a veritable gold mine. Wealth, then, had been the gauge for which Redden Gast had battled, his alpaca coat hanging in loose folds on his huge, raw-boned frame, his countenance granite-hard and expressionless except for the faint sneer of his lifted lip at Marchiero, his predatory eyes contemptuous of the little man whose Van Dyke had bristled and voice grown shrill and stuttering. Hal Curtin had watched the dispute with curious intentness he was careful to mask, with a curious excitement manifested only by the throb of a pulse in his temple. He would only be sure of what he had seen last night, just before that terrific blow had smashed him into oblivion. There had been no decision. Gast, sensing that he had made no progress, had demanded another week's consideration. Curtin had left the town hall with that pump of blood still in his temple, had driven mechanically east with a strange, unbelievable speculation throbbing in his skull. Then he saw that small puffball scuttering up Main Street, and Hilda's queer remark of the morning flashed out of memory. It keeps just ahead of his car's hood, a bounding, irregular sphere all but animate. He recalled Hilda's words. Alive with a queer kind of life, it knows where it's going. Something grated along the side of his roadster. Caught a fender. Let go. The buffball leaped sideways, darted towards the sidewalk, darted across it, and straight into the lobby of a movie theatre whose canopy was overhung with flamboyant signs proclaiming Kitty's Matinee, Mickey Mouse, Rustlers of Sunset Range. Episode 8, Kitty's Matinee. Hal jammed his brakes, hurled out of his car, hurtled into the lobby. A swirl of grey smoke, spore puff of the fungus lay against the white base of the door into the auditorium. Curtin's palm slapped the door, fingers grabbed his arm, and a voice rasped, Ticket, mister! Blackness billowed through the aperture of between door edge and jam, as if an inky fog that filled the interior were finding exit. Where's your... The door was blasted outward by a thunderous crash. Screams came with the thunder, and the black fog was suddenly solid with plaster dust. There were children screaming, children in terror, children in pain. A laugh threaded the chorus of agony. It was the same, chattering, mad laugh he had heard not many hours before, the laugh whose sound had never quite died out of Hal Curtin's brain. The doorman's clutch was a desperate, insensate grip on his arm. He ripped loose from it, battered the door out of his way, plunged through it into an impenetrable darkness. Dust filled and filled with shrill cries. 
with whimpers, with other sounds indescribable, and with that damned laugh. Curtain jerked to a halt, bewildered by that sightless void. Abruptly, the black fog seemed to dissipate. A glow spread through it, and you could make out jumbled timbers, small forms inextricably entangled within them. Small forms struggling, jerking feebly, and not moving at all. Realization of what had happened beat in on Hal. The balcony had fallen with its load of children on the children below, but not all of the balcony. The projection booth was still erect on its stilts, light streaming from its square window. White light which caught the swirling dust and cast a murky glow by which he saw the broken little bodies. Horrified, he saw a tiny hand reach out from between two shattered beams, its wee fingers gloved with blood, twitching. The laugh beat at his brain, the laugh so weirdly evil with insane pain. Where did it come from? Who could be laughing in this hell? Men and shouts poured through the door, behind curtain, battered him and caught him up in their swirl. Men were clawing at the chaos, cursing, sobbing, frantic with horror and with grief. Her voice, scarcely human, jabbered. Leela, Leela, where's my Leela? She's in here. The dust swirl, heavy, was settling, the cloud thinning. The light from the projection booth was gathering into a sharp-edged beam, boring through the terrible darkness. Its end was a great white square on the further wall. This was the screen that should be displaying an antique rodent. On it, black, shaggy, and grotesque, capered the gigantic shadow of that which laughed. Just wow, mates. Who'd have thunk that a story written all the way in 1937 would pack such a punch? Fire-starting puffballs, creatures born from the flames to only laugh menacingly as the flames consume house, home, and theatres. This story just keeps on giving. I get this weird gremlins vibe from this story, and I think it's the visual idea of a tiny puffball skittering through traffic and weaving through people's feet that reminds me of those little creatures. So I wonder what the heck is going to be just around the corner for our protagonist, Hal Curtin. And mates, I couldn't help initially laugh at the main character's name. I mean, what kind of last name is Curtin? Gosh, it's like calling your character John Dor or Brian Sink. <laughs> Nonetheless, I do wonder what he's going to do to that laughing creature. Will he track it? Find it and kill it? Join me, mates, on Wednesday for the continuation and finale of Soft Blows the Breeze. From hell. Mates, if you get a chance to swing on by my Patreon to see how you can support the show, visit www.patreon.com forward slash SFGT. And if you get a couple of seconds spare, leave an iTunes review so that other awesome listeners like you can find the podcast. And now I want to thank the magnificent people that support this show. First up, my brilliant and amazing Ode Nighty Titan, Maya. Mate, Thank you for your support. I've been able to pay off subscriptions for podcast hosting. Woo! And I'm also improving the show's encoding to upload onto Patreon. Thanks to you, everybody that listens is benefiting. You are amazing. 
And of course, my white tea warlords, I own cows and Lee Bower, you shining knights, glistening in the masses that attack the tea fort of Elgrathia. Seriously, both of you are brilliant. Thank you so much for your ongoing support, and every month you're helping improve audio, pay for stories, support old-time radio shows, and so much more. Thanks, mates. And of course, my epic Earl Grey enforcers, Chad Warren, Joss Heather, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Tea Time Drinker One, and Chris Moller. Mates, you are the lifeblood that pulses through this podcast's veins. All of you are amazing. Thanks to your support, I can reach out to authors and support them as well. So thank you so much for showing this show some love. You're all fantastic people. Mates, have a wonderful weekend. And as always, till next we meet.